0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. If you have your Bibles, please open up to the 8th chapter of Romans If you do not have a Bible, don't leave here without one. We will give you one. Love you to have a Bible and be in it regularly. Spirit of God uses that as His mighty tool, His living tool to work great change in us. Romans chapter 8. We are in a series preaching through this letter, the letter called Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome in the first century. My opinion, you've heard me if you've been here very long say many, many times, I believe it's the greatest letter ever written. We've come to the 34th verse of the 8th chapter. And what we have in verses 33 and 34 is this ongoing development of an of a set of truths a propositional statement that Paul makes about the security of the believer those that are truly saved that their position in Christ is secure it's what the 8th chapter is all about and in verses 33 and 34 what Paul does is that he in descriptive language, takes us into the courtroom of heaven. And he reasons with us. He states his case in a very judicial way, in a legal way, showing how the believer in Jesus is secure from any possibility of condemnation. And so, what he does in verse 33 is that he asks the question in view of heaven's courtroom, a challenging question, throwing it out to all of the universe as a challenge, saying, Who can bring any charge against God's elect? And his response to that is God who justifies. And I'm not going to re-preach that from last week, but the point there is that it is an impossibility that anyone could bring a charge against God's elect, because God is the one that elected them in eternity past, and God is the one that justifies them in a moment in their life, and if God has determined from eternity past, He's going to save them, and God has entered into their life at a moment in time and justified them. How in the world could anyone bring a charge against them when God on the throne, God the great judge, is the one that has already elected and declared them to be forever righteous? That's the argument of verse 33. Verse 34, He stays in heaven's courtroom as the scene and He comes at His proving of the argument in another way. He says in verse 34, and here's the verse that we're going to dig into today, he throws out another question. And he says, Who is to condemn? In other words, is there anyone in all of the universe that can condemn a son or a daughter of God? And his answer is, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is, indeed is interceding for us. So first of all, just a quick overview. And then we're going to look at the statements here uh, piece by piece. What Paul does here is that he frames the force of his argument the same way he framed the force of his argument in verse 33. He centers the argument on the divine nature. He is saying everything that he is saying here in verse 34 that it is an impossibility for One who believes in Jesus Christ who has been saved to ever come into condemnation because of who Jesus is, what He has done, where He's at, and what He is forever doing. That's what he says right here in verse 34. He comes right to Jesus and four times he emphasizes that Jesus is the one that proves that we can never be condemned if we're saved. Just look at it real quick. His first statement in response to the question, who is to condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Point being made before we look at it in detail is that Jesus is at the center of the fact that you can never be condemned if you're a Christian. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then the second statement says who was raised. Who is he referring to when he says who? He's just referring back to Christ Jesus. You see that? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Christ Jesus who was raised. In addition to that, Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, and in addition to that, Christ Jesus, who is always interceding for us. You see, what He does four times in verse 34 is He redundantly emphasizes the fact that at the center of the argument here that proves the security of the believer is Jesus, 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 Jesus. So what? Does he say about Jesus specifically? Let's look. He gives us four great truths. Ladies and gentlemen, any one of these four truths is enough to forever for all time take care of sin and secure the believer, but we don't get one, we get four. And we get them in an ever-ascending emphasis of priority. Let me just show you that. Now, his first statement related to the proof that the believer can never be condemned is this. It is Christ Jesus who died. Christ Jesus who died. Charles Spurgeon said this, When I think of my sin, it seems impossible that atonement could ever be made, that a payment that would satisfy the debt against my sin could ever be paid. But then he goes on to say, But then when I think about the death of Christ Jesus, it seems impossible that any sin should ever be great enough that would need such an atonement, such a payment as that. As shocking as his sin was, he said, and that it could be paid when he looks to Jesus Christ on the cross, the very Son of God on the cross, he is far more shocked that any sin would ever merit such an incredible price. So I have many times throughout Romans and the many, many messages that have preached from Romans, emphasized the death of Christ. I'm not going to take a long time to do that here. I want to get to the other three points, but let me just very quickly make several statements and read verses that emphasize the power of the death of Jesus Christ and what it did. His death was a willing death. It wasn't an accident. It was a planned, accomplished work between Him and the Father. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why He came. It was a substitutionary death. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. It was a sin-forgiving death. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It was a death for the ungodly. Not for us when we had pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps and made ourselves worthy. No, it was a death for the rebellious enemy of God. Romans 5.6 For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. It was a death that secured peace with God. Colossians 1.20 And through Jesus to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross, the Father made peace between sinful man and holy God by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was a death that secures the believer's eternal place in heaven, Hebrews 9, 12, Jesus entered once for all time into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It was a death that satisfied the wrath of God, Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And I could go on. It's a death that proves the love of God. It's a death that defeats Satan and his forces. Let me read you that verse. Colossians 2.15 That God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross of Jesus Christ. So on and on, the death of Jesus Christ. How is it possible that any son or a daughter can be condemned? Paul's answer is it is impossible when you consider the death of Jesus Christ and what He did through that death. It's a ridiculous idea. It's a ludicrous thought that one saved could ever come unto condemnation again. But let's go to the second statement. The second great proof that further establishes Paul's argument, he goes on to say not only that Jesus died, but more than that, who was raised. First of all, who was raised? That statement. The verb there is passive. There is an intent by Paul here to identify the passive nature of that verb, meaning Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. He was raised from the dead. The emphasis here is the fact that the Father raised Him from the dead. How does that feed into Paul's proof That those who are in Christ, those who have accepted Him can never be condemned again? How does the fact that the Father God raised Jesus from the dead help build the proof for that argument, that truth? You see, what the resurrection, I've told you this on a number of occasions throughout Romans, but what the resurrection of Jesus Christ was, it was the statement from the Father that He had accepted the Son's sacrifice as full payment. Now let me just talk about that for a minute in a way that I haven't before. Just try to place yourself in mind's eye back in the first century. You're a follower of Jesus back in the first century. You had traveled extensively with Him. You had placed your hopes upon Him. You would agree no one ever taught as He taught. You watched Him heal the lame and the blind and the deaf. You watched as He raised the dead. You saw Him walk on water. I mean, your hopes were set upon this man that was unlike any other man. And what he had said to you on a number of occasions was that he was going to die. In fact, he said that he was going to die a very specific death at the hands of the Romans. He was going to be crucified. And that the reason he was going to do that was that he was going to do it in payment for sin. That very statement about his mission even came right at the very inauguration of his three-year ministry at 30 years old when John the Baptist saw him at the Jordan River and shouted out, out loud, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to die in payment for sin and then He died. He died like He said He would die. He was taken down from the cross and He was buried in a tomb and a stone was rolled across the entrance to the tomb and a seal was put there and Roman soldiers guarded it there because they knew He said He wasn't just going to die but he claimed that he was going to come back to life. And they thought maybe his disciples would try to come steal the body and perpetuate a lie. And the question lingered. Again, you're a disciple. Jesus has said he was going to die for sin. But here's the question. Did he really? I mean, was his sacrifice sufficient to pay the debt of sin? I mean, the unthinkable accumulation of debt of sin that was being stored up against the wrath of a holy, just God. Could his death have possibly paid that debt that's the question that's a legitimate question how would you know if that was fully paid i mean what would be the unequivocal proof that the death of jesus actually in fact did pay the penalty for sin how about this You know, Jesus claimed to be without sin. And you as a disciple never saw Him sin. But what you certainly know from the teachings of Jesus Himself is that sin is really first and foremost an issue of the heart. And so sin can go unnoticed to the human eye. What if He had a sin? But if he in fact had sinned, how could he then die for anybody else's if he was guilty? What would prove that number one, he was sinless and could die for others? And number two, that his death for others would satisfy all of the payment needed for the sins of humanity? What would be the proof? And the question lingered. And then on Sunday morning after the Friday crucifixion came the answer to the question, because what happened on Sunday morning was that God raised him acts romans eight thirty four God raised him from death, and in doing that god proved once and for all that the full payment was fully made for sin. It was God's endorsement. It was God's proclamation. God raised Him from the dead and had the angels roll the stone away so that humanity could go in and see that He was alive. And that means that God had accepted in full the payment for sin forever. That's the proof that guarantees that what He did there in the resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection, satisfied the full justice of God, absorbed the full wrath of God against sin. And Paul even makes the emphasis, just notice it quickly. He doesn't say, Jesus died and Jesus was raised, he said Jesus died, and more than that, or much more, was raised from the dead. The point there is that even a stronger testimony than the crucifixion itself, that your salvation is secure if you're a believer, even a more telling, proving Situation than even the crucifixion is the resurrection of Jesus. That once and for all time is the statement from the Father of heaven I have fully accepted the full payment of my Son for sin. In fact, that's not even the only place in Scripture that emphasizes the Increasing proof that the resurrection provides. Romans 5.10 For if while we were sinners we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. He's saying the same thing right there. Oh, much more does the resurrection guarantee the fact that the believer can never again come into condemnation. Who is it that condemn, can condemn when Jesus Christ is the one who died much more than that is the one who was raised? And what about His resurrection? How does that specifically prove the, the guaranteed non-condemnation of those who are His? Well, here is what we're told over and over again in the Word of God that the very merits of Christ in His death and His resurrection, that every everyone who has put their faith in Christ, they're to own those merits as their own. Now, that's a shocking statement, but I didn't make it. The Word of God makes it that the very merits of Christ that He is the all righteous perfect one that died for sin once and for all time and rose to new life to live with God once and for all that that very reality is to be ours we're to say that is mine as much as it is Christ that is as true of me as it's true of Christ if I put my faith in Him Romans chapter 6 verse 11 arguing that point, Paul comes to this conclusion and says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He said there we're to consider ourselves dead to sin. Just like Jesus died to sin once and for all, we are as believers to consider ourselves dead to sin. Meaning, the law has no jurisdiction over us anymore if we're in Christ. Period. Ended. And secondly, alive to God, just like Jesus Christ rose from the dead as He said that He would, He can never die again, Scripture says. And the same is true of us. We can never die again. We can never come into condemnation again because we are dead to sin and alive to God just like Jesus Christ is dead to sin and alive to God. Can I get a witness to that? Amen. Amen. Who can possibly condemn one that Jesus has died and rose again for, that has put their faith in him and been saved? by His death and resurrection. Who can possibly condemn? As if that were not enough to prove His case, Paul goes on that Jesus not only is the one who died and who much more is at the right hand of God, but who is also, who is also rose from the dead, but who now, number three, is at the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God. This picture here is imagery that is very rich. I know we can't picture God, but just try to see the scene in heaven. I mean, is there a higher throne than the throne of heaven? No. It's the throne of omnipotence. And there at the right hand of the Father is the holy perfect Son. It's a picture that points to dominion and rule and authority and power and majesty. It's a position that points to honor and acceptance and favor the right hand. The throne of heaven. All of the universe is under the dominion of the one who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Ephesians 1, 19-21. Just consider these three verses for a minute. Paul writes, And what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe? And what's that power like? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one that is to come. Listen Jesus Christ is not simply the highest in an ascending order of authority with those just Right under him in a decreasing way. No, Paul wrote there that Jesus is far above all rule and authority. There is no one else on the playing field. There was no one else with any degree of authority like Jesus Christ has. There is no other name that is a name like the name of Jesus Christ that has His dominion, that has His authority, that has His power, that has His majesty. He is sitting as the reigning Lord over all the universe. That's the point Paul is making here. The point is this. Jesus transcends... The dominion of Jesus transcends. The power of Jesus transcends. And then the first verse, verse 19, based upon the reality of who Jesus is and where He's seated and what He's doing there as the sovereign reigning Lord in dominion over the universe, it says that that same great power, that resurrecting, all-conquering power of God Himself is toward us who believe. Verse 19 of Ephesians 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? It is according to the working of His great might. And then He explains Christ. So the point is this, the very power reticent in the resurrection, the power reticent in the very reigning, ruling Lord of the universe, that power is toward us who believe. Now what does that mean, toward us who believe? It's saying this, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, His power, His all-reigning All dominion power is toward you for the purpose of saving you. For the purpose of justifying you, but not just justifying you, the whole package of salvation, of sanctifying you, and that power is towards you in the future glorification that He's going to accomplish in your life throughout all of eternity. That entire package of the good news of Jesus Christ. The power of God is towards you who believe. Now I ask you, who is it that can condemn when it's the reigning Lord of the universe, all authority, all dominion, transcendent in every way, when He is the one ultimately that is going to come to judge the world, if He is the one that died for you and rose again and is now sitting in a reigning position over all the universe and has determined to save you, who in the world is going to ever condemn you? Can I get an amen to that? It is impossible. It's a ludicrous thought. It's a ridiculous statement to even consider that anyone can condemn such a person. That's what Paul is stating here. That's the challenge that he is throwing out to the universe saying, any takers to this challenge and his answer unequivocally is absolutely none. Impossible. Ludicrous. Ridiculous question all proving the point that he started in verse 1 to prove there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There will never be. Why? Because Jesus died. Paid an all-sufficient full payment, nothing left to be paid. He rose again as God's proclamation that he had accepted The all-sufficient sacrifice and now Jesus has been exalted by God Himself, the Father seated there in all reigning authority over all the universe, guaranteeing that He will never allow those that He has saved to come come into condemnation. That is just incredibly powerful stuff. So how safe... How safe is the believer? Let me explain it this way. Jesus Christ, while He was on earth, while He was here, in open, expressed humility, in the frailty of humanity, remaining within the confines of humanity. He was all God, but He was all man and He operated within the limits that we operate within. Exactly the limits that we operate within. That's why He's a high priest that can relate to our weaknesses. He made this statement to His Father. In John... Chapter 18, verse 9. He said this in a prayer to His Father. Of those whom You gave Me, I have lost not one. <laughs> Just think about what that is saying. Father, of everyone that You gave Me, while I'm here in this Human reality here, I didn't lose a single one that you gave me. While I limited myself in the confines of this humanity, I didn't lose a single one. What about now that He is sitting in transcendent dominion over all of the universe? What's He going to do with everyone that the Father gives Him? Is He going to save everyone? No, certainly He is. Certainly He is. It's such a guaranteed reality. If He did it while He was here... In the confines of humanity, what's He going to do now in His transcendent, all-authoritative dominion ruling over the all, all of the universe in omnipotent power? What's He going to do? He's certainly going to not lose even one of those that the Father has given Him. His track record proves it. Listen to this. I'm going to even make that statement even stronger. John 10, 28. this This is good stuff, church. This is good stuff. John 10, 28. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, talking to believers, I give them eternal life and... They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Three statements, three statements. Let me show them to you in reverse order. First of all, starting at the end, he says, No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Here's the cliff notes on that. There is no power in the universe that is capable of storming the throne of heaven and snatching those whom Jesus Christ has saved or determines to save out of His hand. No power can do that. No enemy can rise up victorious against the sovereign, reigning, transcendent King of all eternity. None. It's ridiculous. That means secure. Right? That means No condemnation. But let's take it a step further and go back to the middle statement. Because we could ask the question, well, yeah, there's none that could snatch those out of His hand. But what if the individual himself or herself did something that would cause God to cast them from His hand? Look at the middle statement. They will never what? They'll never perish. They will never perish. How long is never? It's forever, right? They will never perish. They will never come into condemnation. They will never go outside of the justifying, saving scope of God's blessing over them. They will never perish. Meaning, just like there is no enemy that can come and snatch one that God has chosen and called to Himself out of His hand, there is nothing that the one that God has chosen and called to Himself can ever do that would cause God to cast him or her from his hand. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself said, they will never perish. And if a sin could cause us to be cast out and perish, then Jesus is a liar. And he's the truth. He's not a liar. So those two things, those two statements are really the commentary on the first statement. For the first statement is this, Jesus said, I give them. What kind of life, church? Eternal life. Eternal life. Here's a question. When does eternal life begin? Rhetorical question. When does eternal life begin? Does eternal life begin on that great and final day when Jesus returns in glory and we are transformed, the dead in Christ are raised from the dead and those who are still alive are transformed and we all get glorified bodies and we step over into heaven to be with Him forever, is that the moment that eternal life begins? What I submit to you is that Scripture says, no, that's not when eternal life begins. Eternal life begins the moment you're saved. Eternal life begins the moment you're justified. I could give you verse after verse to prove that. But let me just read one. John 5, 24. Again, Jesus. And He starts by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, listen really carefully. What I'm going to say to you is guaranteed truth. I guarantee it myself. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. That doesn't sound like a future thing. That sounds like a present reality. They have it. But he goes on to say, He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, it's a present reality. It's true right now for everyone who believes in Him. They have already passed out of death into life. And what kind of life is that? It's eternal life. How long is eternal? You see, if we can be saved and then we can, through the attack, the attack of the enemy or through our own sinful tendencies, do something to be cast out from the presence of God, to be cast out of the scope of justification and peace with God, then we would lose our eternal life and it wouldn't be what? It wouldn't be eternal! How could it be eternal if we are at the moment of justification given eternal life and then at some point down the road do something that... Casts us outside of that into a place of condemnation and the wrath of God again, that's not eternal life. But the Bible says repeatedly, again and again, redundantly, that what Jesus gives is eternal life. I just did a quick search this morning on eternal life related to Jesus giving that and there's no less than 35 verses in the New Testament alone that state that truth over and over and over and over again. It's eternal. And how can it be eternal if it's not guaranteed forever? The point is, it is guaranteed forever. The point is, who can condemn you if you're a son or a daughter of God? Who? can possibly, can condemn you. And then the fourth great statement here. Again, moving up in an ascending proof. Paul's fourth statement is this, that Christ Jesus is not only the one who died, and much more than that was raised, and is at the right hand of the Father, but who indeed is interceding for us. He's interceding for us. Here the picture is of the advocate. Here the picture is of the Son there at the right hand of the Father making intercession, pleading with the Father, speaking to the Father, presenting our case to the Father. And you say, well, wait a minute. Legitimate question here. Wait a minute. If Jesus in His sacrificial death, fully satisfied sin, made the full payment, and the Father proved that He had accepted it, then what is Jesus doing at the right hand of God interceding? Well, here's what He's not doing. He's not doing anything else to secure an incomplete salvation. That's been done. It's complete. What He's doing there, as the High Priest continually interceding for us, is that He is the living, divine proof Always visibly there at the right hand of the Father as the guarantee that the penalty has been paid. He is the Lamb of God. Do you know what He still bears in His body? He still bears the marks of crucifixion in heaven. Do you know you're going to see those for all of eternity? and they're going to be beautiful things to you in heaven you're going to see him as the lamb of god by the marks that are in his wrists and in his feet and the spear thrust in his side that proved his death when blood and water flowed and the thorns pressed into His brow that caused the scars. Those marks are going to be marks upon Jesus Christ throughout all of eternity as an endless, eternal testimony that the price has been paid. that nothing can ever jeopardize your salvation if you put your faith in Him because He fully satisfied what the Father required. You see, He is at the right hand of the Father as our High Priest, giving ongoing, living, eternal proof because He is always there, always interceding for us based upon His meritorious work in His death and resurrection. The writer of Hebrews says this, pointing out the ascending proof of the intercession of Christ at the Father's right hand. Consequently, Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save us to the uttermost. Why? Because he's always there at the Father's right hand as the proof that the sacrifice has been fully paid. And the Father who loves the Holy Son and the Son who provided the full sacrifice is saying, Father, I paid for their sin. I paid for that sin fully. You know I did. Father says, I know, son, you did. Father, I paid for that sin right there. I know, son, you did. I see the marks. I understand. You see, the interceding work of Jesus Christ as our advocate, as if the first three proofs were not enough, further validate the truth that if you're a son or daughter of God, condemnation for you is an absolute ludicrous thought because Jesus was condemned for you so that the Father can never condemn you for what has already been paid. And the proof of that is that He died. But more than that, was raised as the Father testified that I accept the payment in full. But even more than that, He is at the right hand of the Father in reigning all transcending dominion, ruling the universe in sovereignty, guaranteeing that He will make sure that you are secure. But more than that, He's also pleading your case eternally with the Father as He intercedes for the saints as a testimony that all is done. We're going to end with communion as a way to just highlight that truth. Worship team, would you come? What a great set of Scripture to lead into Communion. You see, what we are recognizing in communion is that the broken bread represents the broken body of Jesus through His death on the cross and the juice represents the spilled blood of Jesus shed for the remission of sins so that what communion is is a way for us to remember Jesus told us to take the bread and the juice and in doing so to remember the price He paid. So we're going to do that If you're one who has placed your faith in Christ, this is for you. It's for you. If you haven't coming in here this morning, you can do that right now, today. Having heard the truth about who Jesus is and what He has done, you can recognize that you need a Savior like that and it's your only hope and you can cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to save even me. And He will. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the promise of Scripture. Would you please stand? We're going to pray and then the ushers are going to pass communion. If you want to receive that, you just take some bread and juice and pass the trays along. If you don't want to receive communion, that's fine. Just pass the trays down the aisle and we'll sing a few songs in closing here. Father, we just want to remember as we close Reflect upon the truth of the death of your holy, perfect, co-equal, co-eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And the price in, price in that debt that he paid to secure forever our salvation. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.